out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of Douglas McIntyre, guitarist and songwriter, has been in a lot of bands, also has uh, started a record label, Creeping Bent Records, but was in um, such bands as Love and Money, The Jazz of Tears, The Sexual Objects. But most importantly, and uh, one of the many reasons for doing this interview, is that he's got a single out from his very early band from 1981, Article 58, titled event to come this has come out on optic nerve records all the way from preston and this was um produced by um postcard records alan horn and also malcolm ross so with that excitement um all i want you to do sit back relax and enjoy the next whatever um so as always we had a casual chat about life and then we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years (laughs) douglas take it away Yes, there was. Um, uh, I think it was very much the, uh, you know, the, the exact same period. It was the seventies, but it was very dominated by radio. To be to be honest, it was like Radio One, and what was great about it was you'd have all the glam rock records, all the pop records. There was lots of soul new music, and I mean, someone like Tony Blackburn is obviously uh, often derided. But he would be playing, um, you know, non-stop the Detroit Emeralds. So you yes. grew up in the 70s listening to the charts and you didn't differentiate between the Detroit Emeralds and then uh, it, it might be, you know, Wizard coming on next. So it was, you know, you're young, you just you just process everything. And even novelty records, they were a big thing in the 70s. <laughs> everything felt good, you know, so. I know, we had Telly Savalas, Benny Hill. All those kind of classics. I mean, yes, and um, was it Tammy Wynette with Divorce? And um, yes, it it was all there. Yeah, but you're right, because there weren't that many channels, were there? And I sort of came from a working class, you know, family background in in the countryside, and we didn't even have a record player until the early 70s. And then, you know, that appeared because, you know, my parents, I think when they got married, they just got rid of everything or sold it and just, you know, because they were the generation that never borrowed money. Um, so they always find that a bit strange if anyone borrowed money and then got into debt. Why do you do that? So we, you know, they got rid of that, and then it appeared in the seventies. And we had two records. My, bro- I had an older brother who bought, you know, um, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road and um, Sergeant Pepper, and it was like, my God, uh, amazing. So, so you just kind of, you know, and that was like nineteen seventy three, seventy four, you know. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. Yeah. I just played those, and like you said, Top of the Pops, and also Radio One on a Sunday evening, the top twenty chart. Yeah. Right I think the, um, I mean, the charts were so influential and BBC, uh, I mean, the first single I bought was was Wizard Ballpark Incident, again, because I heard it on Radio 1 and I probably saw it on Top of the Pops. The, the kind of twist with that was I started watching, uh, you know, again, similar sort of background to yourself and we had an old, we got a colour television that was a big deal. So I got the old knackered black and white television in my room, yes, and, it, and I started watching the old grey whistle test, much of most of which was above my head. But I, one of the very first things I saw was the sensational Alex Harvey band, who were um, very theatrical, and yes, because and scary, Bowie, and scary because I was into Bowie and the charts. I just gravitated towards uh, they were performing the Faith Healer and then the Jacques Brel song next, and 
to me, I couldn't see the difference between that and Bowie. It all felt part of the same thing. So the first album I bought, I was pretty young, actually. I must have been 11 or, I don't know, something like that. I bought uh, the album Next by the Sensational Alex Harvey Band. So I kind of really got into albums. And with a band like that, it felt like every track was a, a single anyway, in a strange kind of way. Um, but yeah, it's the BBC. It was, it was a really great era to grow up and be turned on to a multitude of different genres of music. Yes, I think I used to be sent to bed before the old grey whistle test and that was it really. So I slightly missed that. I think it was in the early 80s when we suddenly got the tubes suddenly appeared and that was kind of a massive thing in my life. So um, yes, and did you, and were your parents at all musical or did you have any brothers or sisters who sort of assisted? No, no no one I didn't. I had an older cousin uh, who was quite inspiring, a guy, um, name is Victor and he had uh, you know uh, you know I suppose he probably had all those early Beatles singles which you know I can vaguely remember but I'd go up to his house and he would have uh, you know all the sort of um, you know rock records which I tried hard to to get into to try and impress people you know bands like Yes or uh, I think who else? Led Genesis. Zeppelin. There wasn't any Genesis, but there was definitely Yes. And I remember listening to a Yes album, and I, and I tried so hard to be cool and like it, and it was just perjured. You know, I was, I was running back to my Bowie albums after that. So, uh, yeah. So yeah, but, but there were quite a lot of records that he did have that I liked. Um, so whereabouts uh, in Scotland were you? Did you uh, grow up? I grew up. It's a very small rural village called Straven. Uh, Strathaven is how you would phonetically say it, but it's close to Hamilton, so it's it's South Lanarkshire. It's Lanarkshire. There's a lot of bands, obviously, come from, you know, the Bell's Hills just up the road from Lanarkshire. So there's a there's a big kind of scene there right, you know, now. When we were growing up, it was you know there was you know there were no bands in Scotland really. It sounded like being in the countryside in East Anglia, actually. It, it, was like... it would be simple. It would be similar because it was where I grew up. Farming, you know, farming land. Uh, countryside was beautiful, but culturally, a bit of an oasis. <laughs> yes, it was. Yeah, it was exactly the same. Really, there was a bit, a few country and western sort of bands, but nothing serious. And yeah, there was no. Yeah, we were just a long way from everything, really. So, so I'm always really envious when people go, "Oh yeah, well, you know, we had all these bands at school," and it's like we had no bands at school. We just played football mm. a lot and. And that was no, you know, and played music and argued about who you liked. And everything was very tribal. This was in the, towards the late 70s, you know, you couldn't, you had to stick to one thing and status quo were the band that you had to like or pretend you liked because, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't go, oh, I quite like the beat because you would have got beaten up for being a mod. You know, it was kind of a bit like that, you know, at the school disco and um, or the village hall disco, really. But it was all kind of, yeah, it was very much like denim, you know, when people just going into the chicken factory or the, Working on the farm, but you know there was no careers teachers who said, "Oh, you might be able to do something in your life." It was like just go to the factory. There you go. It was very tribal. I mean, Scotland. The, you know, the image that I suppose of Scotland is, you know, the industrial Scotland as being quite a hard place and quite a violent place. There is a lot of truth to that. To be absolutely honest, in that seventies period, it did feel a bit. I think it was the same everywhere in the UK. It did feel a bit like you had to look over your shoulder if you were going to the, the youth club disco yes. or whatever, you know. 
some some little kid on his 50cc moped would have just come up and beat you up yeah, and that would have that would have been intimidating so look then so when punk sort of appeared because frankly when punk happened you know it didn't make any effect on my life at all really mm-hmm. um did it did it sort of have any sort of wave or ripples in your life yeah it did i was i think in third year at school and you know i was an inveterate reader of the new the music papers so I was kind of aware there was this thing called punk that was beginning to happen. I was also reading a lot in the NME and and you know the other newspapers about what was happening in New York. So it was quite an unusual phenomenon when you compare it to the current new climate for accessing new music, where you would read about things like television or the Voidoids and CBGBs, and you would hear about what was happening in London with the Pistols the class but you couldn't hear any of these records because they hadn't been signed so <laughs> it was um but if to me if i was really intrigued by it because i you know when the talk was these people don't play music they don't play their instruments it's creating this new music so i, th- I thought it was going to be something really avant-garde and then a friend uh a friend in the village sent away mail order and got uh it got uh anakin uk New Rose and and stranded, you know, by the Saints. Yes. House again. This is like council house, so it was a real big deal for 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 a big you know bunch of us. And we put Anarchy on. I mean, Anarchy in the UK, I got straight away. It just sounded like Ziggy Stardust to me with a you know with Johnny Rotten singing. So it, it was exciting for us. I have to be honest. It was it was a it did make a big. Uh, it opened our eyes to to a whole bunch of different things. Yes, well, absolutely. Yes, I didn't. Um, such great bands. But it's kind of interesting because I've done a lot of kind of interviews with bands from New York and it's such a different scene that they're kind of punk period than the UK. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of UK became very sort of boring very quickly, didn't it? And it became like you had to wear this outfit, whereas New York was just nothing like that at all. It was really, you know, much more interesting musically and the bands became much more interesting, whereas the UK just went from being like quite good to, God, they're so boring now. They're kind of conventionally. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, absolutely. It became, it became really traditional really quickly, really orthodox. And the, the bands that I really gravitated towards were probably the type of bands that were doing John Peel sessions, but couldn't get record deals or whatever reason they didn't put records out. So it'd be like the Subway Sect, the Slits, uh, Alternative TV, those kind they were the prefects. Those kind of records became like really um, important for me much, you know, pretty soon you get, I mean, punk was dead by the time you know, the first Clash album came out really, it just felt like, well, that was interesting, but where's this music going to go? Is it going to be remain this orthodox rock music with, you know, different singers and different lyrics? Or is there going to be something new come out of it? And I mean, you know, to me, Vic Goddard is the, the absolute epitome of uh, the intelligence, the eloquence, the challenging aspects of what punk was meant to be about. Yes, good old Vic. I've done a few interviews with Vic. Ah, he's great. He's such a such amusing story. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. I've been, I've been fortunate to give a play guitar with Vic over the years, and I've released some of his music on my label. So I, I know him, I know him well, and he's uh, he's you know, he is uh, the the great English genius in my eyes. 
Yes, absolutely. So look, 79, exciting year. Mm -hmm. Margaret Thatcher gets in, Conservative mm -hmm. government, and then suddenly we had the Falkland War, then we had the, the miners' strike, Greenham Common, then obviously there was kind of a bit later on Red Wedge and, and all that kind of political scene with the SWP, well, mm -hmm. some people anyway, or TVP. Mm -hmm. I don't know, it depends what your diet was at the time. Yeah. So what was it like during that kind of 80s period? Because because there had been the punk period and then there was the light post-punk with all those kind of interesting scratchy bands like Gang of Fool magazine, Nightingales, The Fool had appeared. Mm -hmm. So um, did, were, you, were you sort of leaving school around that period? Yeah, I think I left school in 78. Uh, I think I went to college, um, but I, I dropped out. I was trying to to get into being in a band or you know but because I lived in the countryside it was difficult to find people that you could really connect to but I did play in a few you know find musicians to try and play with but I was really just kind of working on trying to get songs together and it was really I suppose um you know, just a lot of the usual stuff, you know, the uh, the fall were a big influence. Uh, listening to John Peel was exciting. And although a lot of that music is easily derided now because it almost became a cliche itself, when you first heard it, it was quite interesting. It was like, well, this is not punk. It's very angular. It's different. I, think I remember the, one of my first John Peel shows I listened to, it had I Am The Fly by Wire. And I thought, uh -huh, uh -huh. God, that's, that's definitely different, you know, because I had... Uh -huh. Because funny enough, my I had an older brother who was seven years older. He was really into prog. So, you know, uh -huh. when you were struggling with Yes, you know, it was one of those bands I sort of got a bit obsessed with. You know, just a couple of their albums, but Yes, yeah, Genesis, yeah. Wishbone Ash, mm -hmm. Barkley James Harvest and, and all uh -huh. that. Kind of, and the solo work of Rick Wakeman. You could have guessed it. But then by the 80s, I'd got really bored of it and was like, God, OK. And someone said, you listen to John Peel? And it was like, well, it's definitely different. You know, I Am A Fly, uh -huh. definitely quite... <laughs> <laughs> something else well I mean, again it's going back to what we, we spoke about with the the bbc i mean peel was a, a massive influence because you know, even when i was at school it was you know you know just sitting meant to be doing homework and you're just uh, under the covers listening to peel and they would i think things like dub was a big thing for me because it felt like it was a new music uh, and you know, and a lot of i just like the eclecticism of peel playing an old blues track that was you know, falling apart, and then you'd have dub, which was deconstructing everything, and then you've got Vic and the slits, and uh, it did feel, it did feel really exciting because it was so varied. You know, so yes. you weren't just on one diet; you were getting a real mix of lots of different influences. Yeah, well, I was talking to um, the guitarist from Dogface Hermans and and the X, Andy Moore, uh -huh. I think. And um, and he was just, we were talking about John Peel in the sense that in one show you would just get the whole lot, wouldn't you? From Bulgarian folk to, you know, African music to sort of rap music in that whole sort of period as well as indie pop and thrash metal. And and it was just all sort of thrown in. And, and you know, those kind of 50s soul records and um, blues yeah. records that he would sort of pull out from the Kent record label or some very scratchy little kind of number. Wow. And you thought, you know, I remember listening to Ella, Washington you know and I never had come across Ella Washington but then it was like you know I had to I had to go and sort of mail off you know like a three pound 99 pound check to uh, somewhere to get this record which I still have and it's like it just means so much because I just remember him sort of playing it and think god that's just the most beautiful yeah. thing I've ever heard you know and that was and John Peel. and it's that one listen 
that's the thing, you know, you, you can't replay it. Technology wasn't there. And you would listen again to hope you could hear it. And there's a, there's a couple of records that do stand out for me uh, on Peel. I mean, uh, and one of them's, I guess it is a kind of sub kind of proggy type band. It was the follow on from Soft Machine. It was a matching mole, which was, you know, Robert Wyatt and a great song called uh, Oh Caroline. And that just really, it's a beautiful, beautiful song. And there was another band called, uh, they were, I think they were sisters perhaps, they were called the Roaches. They had a great song called the Hammond Song. And you had know, never heard, you know, these records weren't, you know, by this time I was really, you know, I was really interested in angular, scratchy, post-punk guitar. These records were beautiful, you know, and you just keep hoping that one time you would play it again because you weren't quite sure who the record was by and then you'd hear it and it was like a year later. You're like, wow, that's amazing. That's a record that really like, you know, blew my head open. And, yes, and it was wow. quite irritating because he'd only... I used to record it on my trusty TDK mm -hmm. E90 tape, so I've got a whole sort of bag of them, but they slowly get lost over the years. But you'd sort of like, oh, there is one of these tapes somewhere. He's played uh, this really good song. And then you'd listen to it and you still couldn't quite understand what he says, going, oh, God, you know, I, I can't quite... How do you spell that, John? It's gone, you know, whereas now it's all on the internet. Everything's on the playlist on the internet. But in those days, he would just say... Or he'd say, oh, that's the Darling Buds, if you want to get in touch with them, this is their address. And you go, oh, wait a minute, you know, I'll go and listen, go and send £1.50p off to the Darling Buds in Newport, South Wales, and get the single. And it's, you know, it was kind of exciting, because I still got some of those records, which is amazing. So um, It was, and, you know, and you know, years later, I mean, uh, Peel became a big a big supporter and fan of Creeping Bent Records. So when, when I started putting, you know, running my own label, it was amazing dude, because we did our bands I think did more sessions than any other Scottish label. He was he really loved the music that we put out. And so I got to know him and of course, you know, anyone that's met him, he's a, he's a lovely man. But he was you know, he was very inspiring as a person, you know, and, and of course you do you do have that starstruck thing where you do remember being a kid listening to Peel and then, you know, he's he's suddenly it's kind of your your other side of the desk where he's a uh, really supportive of what you're trying to do. Yes. So, yeah, it was great. Really yes. So then in the early 80s, is Article 58 your first band? Yeah. So that was the first thing that we did. I was 18 and uh, we were massively inspired. We were just at that time where Fast Product in Edinburgh was starting to... Uh, you know, they, drew, they gained notoriety by releasing the Mekons and Gang of Four and the Human League, but they just released their first Scottish band, Scars, and that first Scars single, uh, you know, Adultery and Horror Show was such a a big, big record for Article 58. So we were massive fans of the Scars, mm. and we used to go and see Joseph K all the time. So probably the influence of those two bands definitely was hung heavy over what we were doing in Article 50. We were very inspired by them. You know, um, there was a fanzine called us Sons of K, which we were furious about at the time, but actually probably pretty accurate. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So did you, had you relocated by then or were you still sort of living in, in the countryside? Yeah, no, I was still in the countryside. And the, the, the vocalist, uh, Jerry, 
uh, was from Hamilton. So we were all quite close. Hamilton's quite, uh, I suppose, an industrial town, uh, whereas we were just maybe about 15 miles down from that. We were used to rehearsing an old chicken hut, so we were, def- <laughs> we were definitely rural. <laughs> God, um, what a smell chickens have as well. Oh, honestly, it was, it was just it was freezing, probably asbestos laden, no doubt. But we used to rehearse there, and I think the the austere, cold, and the unpleasant conditions did mutate into the music we were trying to make. So it was very frenetic. It was almost like we we're trying to heat ourselves up. Yeah, just trying to keep warm. Actually, at that yeah, stage, it was. <laughs> it was um, yes. It was. I do have a very romantic kind of um, memory of listening to the, the final score on a Saturday afternoon with all those Scottish names that you mentioned, Hamilton, Chemical, mm-hmm. Queen of the South. I often thought yeah. that one of those projects of going to all these kind of grounds that I used to hear as a, a young boy, just to see what those places are like. So what is yeah. Hamilton like, by the way? Because it's such a great name for a football team, academical. Well, I am a season ticket holder for Hamilton Academical and... Queen of Coincidentally, the they are playing Queen of the South on Saturday, and I am going. So, uh, great synchronicity there. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, the, it's kind of like I suppose trying to think of an English equivalent, or a, a, it's like all of those, you know, um, small towns that circulate around London. You know, yes, kind of like satellites. So, you know, Hamilton's like a satellite of Glasgow. It feels like. And, uh, you know, Hamilton and Motherwell, the sort of Lanarkshire towns, are they're big, but they feel, to me, they always feel closer to Glasgow than we're just that bit further out into the countryside. Yes, that's um, yeah. yes. So then, so you did two singles on this, didn't you, which have just come out on Optic Nerve Records. So how did this kind of relationship all, how did the call come about? Because I've spoke to quite a few people who, you know, it's always kind of, everyone's got a different story, how Ian from Optic Nerve said, oh yes, I'd love to put out something from from the band. You've done two singles, let's do it. Yeah, well, with Article 50, we, on, we only actually had one single that got released the way it worked out, but we, we were we were recording an album but we we kind of fell apart but what we did was we released a single it was released on joseph k's uh, manager alan campbell had a label called rational records mm-hmm. which is a great great label with the delmonts and the visitors with paul haig so we we released the single on that it was produced by malcolm ross uh, from joseph k and alan horn from postcard and shortly after that article 58 toured uh, did a very short tour of uh, England with Joseph K. So it was, it was very exciting because, you know, we were, Joseph K were our favourite band and they were, it was amazing getting to see them every night. They were incredible. And, uh, you know, we just burned up. We were young, stupid, too much speed, psychosis, madness, all that kind of stuff. And uh, and it kind of fell apart. So it's it's funny for me, you know, like uh, I bumped into Ian at the the Preston Pop Festival last year. Yes, and, and he was you know, he was aware of the single and was interested in releasing it. Uh, you know, about forty years after it was originally released. So yeah, it was it was um, you know, I, I mentioned it to the other guys in the who were in the band and were very excited that it's coming out again. God, that is fantastic news. And what was um, Alan Horn like at this stage in, in the world, time, life? 
because he's become quite an enigma, hasn't he? Let's let's face it. Yeah, I mean, I think Alan was um, a you know it, it, major achievement in a short period of time. You know, was was totally um, burning and on fire. He was he was very very helpful to Article Fifty Eight, uh, um, and you know he helped us understand how the industry worked a bit. Probably in the studio, I would say Malcolm was the you know the the main guy really you know he was the musician and he understood what we were trying to do and probably Alan was the ideas guy but you know you need good ideas so Alan had a surfeit of good ideas he was, he was incredible amount of ideas yeah yeah and how many copies do they press out by the way optic nerve I've never got a clue on these things optic nerve, I'm not really sure I think it's maybe a thousand oh that's going to be fantastically exciting isn't it yeah, well, the, when we when we released the single the first time round, I mean, back then it felt easy to sell a thousand singles, and I think orig the original single was a thousand pressed, and they sold out quite quickly. I think. Yes. So, yeah, it's different times though. And did you have to get the master tape? By the way, did was there any kind of like, or did you just have the original single, and he just had to sort of copy it from it? No, we have the original master tape, which you know was our we. We owned the copyright because, you know, we paid for the recordings. So uh, I had them, uh, but they needed to get, they'd been lying in a cupboard somewhere for a long time. So I think they had to get baked and cleaned up and uh, and it was remastered. And um, yeah, and it's, it sounds good. And uh, it's really great doing doing the record with uh, Optic Nerve because I'm, I'm really impressed with their, their reissues. Uh, I love, for example, the Wild Swans record. He's putting out absolutely love that record, and I love Joseph K. Obviously, Bluebells. Yes, there's a lot of and you know the Wake. There's a lot of really good records he's putting out. Suede Crocodiles. I mean, those are those are the bands I'm more familiar with because they're Scottish. But there's obviously lots of others, and he's so it's a really cool thing he's doing. Oh, I think it's brilliant. I do love the single. I think the single's got a magic to it, hasn't it? Really. So, um, and I know there was a band called the Nibbins from Northumberland called yesterday mm. and that i just think is one of the most i don't know it's a gorgeous record it's just beautiful so um i just yeah i just think i love enthusiasts they just they just they make the world tick so then when that band folded and you were 18 thinking god have mm. i just blown my rock career mm. did you um did you have a sort of a period in the wilderness you can't <laughs> well not really i mean i think i think it's easy to probably put more um more of a chronology on this with hindsight at the time there were, so Article 58 were pretty, you know, like, I suppose in the same camp uh, as the Fire Engines and Joseph K, that kind of uh, guitar approach. Uh, the, we kind of split up and there was two guys from the from the Article 58, me and another chap called June. And there were two guys from another band that split up around the same time called Restricted Code. Who were on you know pop oral which was a fast product so that we started a new group uh, so it was half of restricted code and half of article 50 and we were called the kingfishers but our approach was very much of that it was like that second wave of postcard bands i guess like the bluebells very melodic like pale fountains um friends again strawberry switchblade there was bands that were definitely influenced by the more melodic uh, aspects of 
postcard, like the Jazz of Tears. So we can, the Kingfishers were very much in that that vein. And we um, we never released any records at the time, uh, but we did do quite a bit of recording. We supported people like Aztec Camera, uh, Prefab Sprout. So we're off, off that, you know, kitchenware type, yes. type of band. And, uh, but we have actually, curiously enough, uh, we, we recorded all of the songs last year during lockdown and they sound great. So we're, we're going to put an album out of all the original songs at some point next year, I think. Fantastic. God, this is great. God, this is, I know, there's nothing like archiving at a certain age in your life. So then, yes, because kind of, because indie pop, I put down, I know there is a, this isn't a completely watertight theory, but between mm. 83 to 87, the Smiths appear and suddenly, mm. you know, it really sort of galvanises a feeling of a scene. And I think five years is often a good period of time. And obviously they released a lot of albums at that time. And there was a lot of um, labels, lots of fanzines, you know, lots of those kind of indie bands, as well as all the other kind of mm-hmm. stuff going on as well but it was definitely a glorious time so did you feel quite you know because you were talking about Aztec Camera and Orange Juice and and a lot of those kind of slightly more melodic bands as well that mm-hmm. I somehow sort of felt that you know it all came together with people like the June Brides and the Wolfhands and obviously your old Morrissey and Mars so did you sort of start to sort of get your inner inner indie spirit going at this stage? I think probably probably my you know, uh, independent spirit was very focused of earlier than that with the Article 58 and the Kingfishers period. The Smiths felt to me like the absolute perfect synthesis of everything that those bands have been mentioning, you know, the Pale Fountains, Bluebells, Orange Juice. I think the Smiths were like a postcard band. They were almost like they'd taken all of the great ideas of postcard and the other labels and and created something unique so I think that period that they really um I, I don't mean this in a um ungallant manner they capitalized on that whole period that whole movement of the original orange juice movement and the Smiths took it to a, a mass market but they didn't they did it in a really brilliant way I think you know they kept their focus and I think the bands that came in their slipstream you know, the bands, the bands, I suppose, that are associated with C86. You could feel the postcard thing in the Jesus and Mary chain, in, you know, uh, you know the, the shop assistants, fizz bombs, all of these bands that were part of C86 movement, pastels. To me, it all felt like a continuation of postcards somehow. Yes. It all makes, it, it makes sense. And actually, I think at that stage, you know, there was also, you know, there was less kind of channels, weren't there? So there were more gatekeepers, you know, the mm-hmm. three weekly music papers, you know, John Peel, you had also Kid Jensen and Janice Long. I'm not yeah. quite sure when she started. But also at that time on a Friday afternoon, late, early evening, um, we had the tube as well. And and recently someone's put up all the shows and I haven't watched them in real time, but I flicked through them and they're completely bonkers. They just put anything on the show and um, I say anything but you know it it wasn't a type there was you know authors there was photographers there was you know soul bands there were ranting poets I think anybody they could find on a Friday who was available just got thrown into this show it's very it's very odd and eclectic but brilliant as well I think the um I think a lot of that came from you know my memory is the NME really changed around that time because probably the period 
know, the early 80s period of fast product and postcards, etc. You know, you had sort of the intellectual heavyweights like Paul Morley, you know, uh, talking about factory. But as the NME in the decade moved on and, uh, you know, rap started coming through, it started changing and the, you, the, I felt like the enemy opened up in a really positive way. Who was the Scottish journalist who really championed black music? Was he named? It was Stuart Cosgrove. That's the one I've got a book behind of. I didn't want to look uh, at yeah. Yes. Cosgrove was great because suddenly you had the people that were the traditional enemy, for want of a better term, indie supporters. And then you had Cosgrove and a few others that were very much championing, uh, you know, I guess, you know, like the, the music that was coming from America. Yes. Uh, black music. So it was, it became, and then you started getting features about poets and different types. And, and I kind of feel like the, the tube at its best was a reflection, a really healthy reflection of that, uh, you know, potpourri of different cultural. I seem flavors. to remember Stuart Colesgrove being on the tube with Muriel Gray at one stage, but... Um... I think he probably was, yeah. I would imagine he would be. And I mean, those recent books that he's written about Memphis and, you know, the, the Soul Trilogy books are absolutely brilliantly researched. They're fantastic books. Yes. And did you were you aware of things like Creation Records that was started with Alan McGee and um, that yeah. kind of scene? Yeah, I mean, I think because Alan McGee had always been around, kind of a wee bit on the periphery, of the postcard thing but then when he went to london and he created you know creation and 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 that really kicked in i mean those records are great you'd have to you know uh you know the first mary chain single was just such an obvious massive record and i think that um again that felt like a continuation it felt like it was all part of the same thing you know, and I mean, you know, the Mary Chain covered Vic Goddard on a B-side, so, you know. Yes, and were you aware of people, I'm sure you were, the Orchids and the Jasmine Minks as well, that kind of indie world of Jim Shepard? Yeah, yeah I mean, I was kind of aware of those bands. Um, I think I was maybe living in London by that point, so I didn't really know anyone. Uh, but I was aware of the records just through hearing them on, you know, Peel or more likely Kid Jensen, actually, or the earlier afternoon programme. Yes, and there was the Soup Dragons as well, wasn't there, with yeah, yeah. Hang 10. So what did you then get up to in the 80s then? Because was your next kind of musical adventure flesh? Yeah, we had Altered Images split up, and that featured my um, uh, the guy that was the drummer in my first band, Art 58. So it was a guy called Stephen Laroni, and we started uh, Flesh because the Kingfishers had split up and our idea was to mix Chic with the Contortions so we really really loved Disco, loved uh, Hamilton Bohannon, you know those kind of groove records was really really but we also liked the kind of no wave noise thing that the Contortions were doing, James White and the Blacks so we got a record deal on the basis of that but very, very quickly, the record company were, um, you know, get rid of the contortions element. We, we want you to be like Chic, which, you know, if they'd allowed us to, to be like Chic would have been fine by me because I absolutely love disco. But, uh, you know, I just all get caught up in horrible 80s production and became a bit of a nightmare event. So how long did Flesh last for? I think it was a couple of years, a year, year and a half. It was very quick. You know, I think when you, there was also like a gold rush at that point from everyone that had been 
I guess, part of that early um, early 80s independence movement. So you people, it became hip to be on a major label. So you'd have Green Gartside wanting to be in the charts, Roddy Frame wanting to be in the charts, Orange Juice, etc. And there was definitely that uh, tunnel vision of let's 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 not just be on Peel and let's not just be in the NME, let's be in the real charts, let's infiltrate the mainstream from within, all that bollocks. And uh, and it was almost quite easy to get a record deal if you if you it was more about planning to get a record deal than planning to write great songs. If I'm yes. You know what it felt like. So it's quite soulless in some respects. It became like um, more of an academic exercise in trying to get a record deal. And if you you'd have to be an idiot not to get a record deal at that point. <laughs> so you've got all these you've got all these former, I guess, people inspired by punk who'd taken on the you know the the Malcolm McLaren ethos to a certain extent, and you were talking record companies into giving you big advances. I mean that that'll never happen again. They were just confused because independence became such a vibrant cultural and commercial prospect, especially with the Smiths, that they just started giving money to all these people that had been in, in independent groups, like, you know, Davy Henderson and the guys from the Fire Engine, some of them became win and signed to London, you know, and, and it, it, it was, I mean, it wasn't that good, but it was, uh, I can understand why it happened. <laughs> so then, so yes, 87, you know, the sort of that next wave of 18, 16 to 18 year olds come along, don't they? And they sort of want their own sound. They don't want something yeah. from 83. And there was the sort of birth of the Manchester sound of the Happy Mondays and Stone Roses and Primal Scream and bizarrely the Super Dragons. Um, I know they did well. And did you did you sort of find yourself in London wondering what to do next after Flesh had finished? Yeah, I think I moved back to Glasgow and the you know, there was a band that had been affiliated with Postcard called the Jazzeteers. They had become, after that, Bourgeois Bourgeois, signed to a major label. And then that split up and they went back to being the Jazzeteers. So I kind of joined the, you know, the Jazzeteers towards the very end of of, uh, of their, uh, you know, I suppose their career. And we did quite a lot of recording, which eventually all came out. It's pretty decent, but it was just... Um, wrong place wrong time you know wrong vibe really it was it was more like uh we were kind of really into like you know all the records you're not meant to like uh like the second television album adventure was a big influence for the jazzeteers last period and the second voidoids album destiny street was a big influence for the jazzeteers so it was kind of inevitable inevitable that it wasn't going to connect with, with people. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. That is good. So then, yeah, so what was your next band? Is it the Bathers or...? Well, a lot of that time, I kind of start, I drifted into, I suppose, session work after that. The Jazzeteers was probably my last band that I was a member of. And I did a lot of session work after that for oh, loads of people. And, and they were all friends. They are all people in Glasgow. So it was, it was you know... It's quite an interesting period because in earlier years I'd also done some roading, so I'd I never had any um, problems about uh, getting my, getting dirt under my fingernails, metaphorically or physically. So I, I kind of uh, just felt um, I, I really embraced for a, a number of years doing session work, and it was 
you know, it was quite enjoyable. Yes, well, Jimmy Page did it, didn't he? And um, yeah, yeah, it was all good stuff. But where did you get your, de- you know, develop your guitar style? Because it's got that kind of, quite a, kind of bluesy country quality to it, hasn't it? Well, I, I love Steve Cropper, and uh, you know, the Stax records is probably the country soul, Memphis, uh, you know, that whole period, and a lot of the records you were talking about earlier that you would hear on John Peel, they'd maybe on High Records or Stax. That kind of guitar playing is just, um, you know, absolutely love it. So probably gravitated towards that. I suppose it's a combination of that. And I also like the kind of angular type of guitar playing that Keith Levine was playing right. on the first two Public Image Limited albums. So somewhere in between that, I guess. Did, um, did someone like Chris Isaac, did he have an influence on you? Did you sort of enjoy his guitar sound? Oh. I quite enjoyed that big record that he had, but I, I didn't have any great awareness of him other than the, that single. And I liked that single because it reminded me of Roy Orbison. You know, yes, uh, being yes, the great sort of great one. So then, were, were you you know, is it the case with the, all the bands that you've been with, like Love and Love and Money and Cowboy Mouth and Sugar Town? Were these all mm. th- these weren't your bands? These are sort of bands that you played sessions on. It was mostly session with with those bands. Uh, some of them I produced. Uh, there was there's a great label um, called Marina Records in Hamburg. So I kind of got involved in production and writing with them, uh, and I got involved in you know with, uh, yeah the artists that you mentioned, Mathers, Cowboy Mouth, Sugar Town, uh, and again that was quite an interesting, different approach trying to. Um, to think about producing records and and it was actually really good fun because we would you know as opposed to the you know the 80s big productions these were like really really small productions and small studios and everybody playing live so it was quite interesting um i enjoyed doing that because i learned a lot about production and song and performance and and it was it the main thing throughout all of that the thread throughout all of that there was everybody was my friend so i wasn't doing it in a um, it, it felt like good fun. It didn't feel like work. Yes. But it, it was work. <laughs> <laughs> and then as, as the sort of the decade, you know, progressed on and we'd had that kind of period of a lot of these Seattle, you know, noise bands, I suppose, mm. and we'd had sort of Sonic Youth and, and people like that coming through, then you, you obviously, did you, when did you start thinking, God, you know what I want to do? I want to start a record label. When did that sort of appear? That had always been swirling around in my head, probably from past product, to be honest. Been through to see some of those bands in Edinburgh when Fast was uh, starting. Uh, it always felt to me, like I really loved the idea of having label identities. You know, there were those very strong regional labels that had existed, you know, like Fast, Postcard, uh, Zoo, Factory, and countless others. Yes, they, there was a there was a really nice one in Bristol, wasn't there? Which um, which I can't remember. But uh, I don't, oh god, yes. Sorry, that was I should have rehearsed that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but but, but there were but the, I think the thing with those labels, those those I suppose the big four, was it was um they felt to me they felt more like art an art movement than than a commercial enterprise because you had you know Phil Drummond with Sue. Tony yes. Wilson. Alan Horn, Bob Last. I mean, these guys were really smart, really interesting, almost conceptualists. And 
it wasn't just about music or trying to make a career in the rock industry. It was kind of like the opposite of that in some respects. So I always found that quite intriguing and I thought it was something I'd like to emulate at some point or start my own label and um, without, but not starting a label with a view to, uh, you know, making tons of money, um, but to try and have it as a vehicle for you know, artistic expression. That was the idea behind it anyway when I started it. Yeah, did you, did you get um, much advice or did you sort of, you know, have anybody give you a bit of mentoring or had you known enough to know what you needed to do? Not really. I kind of knew about being a musician and I can assure you being in the Jazz of Tears isn't, uh, uh, you don't learn much for the music industry. <laughs> you learn how to make lots of mistakes uh, by doing stuff like that. But I think the when I started the label, I did have some mentoring with them, um, like Rough Trade were very good. So or Rough Trade Distribution, and they offered me a deal uh, where they manufacture and distribute your records, which suddenly, so all the business side of it, I started to learn just from the moment Rough Trade got involved. And that was a that was a big help. I couldn't have done it without them because they they basically bankrolled Creeping Bent to an extent. You know, you you they would pay up front for all your your big costs and they would recoup it against their sales, and then, you know, if they're, and the records were selling. That's the other thing, I suppose, because we started in 1994. Yes. And our first four or five records were some, you know, they were all on the NME, we were getting records of the week, and and you could actually sell records. So it, it kind of felt quite easy. In some I guess respect. it was also a bit of a, was it a golden time again, you know, because the sort of advent of CDs meant that there was suddenly everybody replacing their vinyl records and CD manufacturing costs and the cost of the CD is like amazing markup, isn't it? And, mm -hmm. you know, I know we get those stories. It was champagne and cocaine during that kind of Britpop period. So um, I just wondered if there was just happy times. Though Rough Trade sort of had gone bust, hadn't they, in the sort of late 80s? Yeah, well, Rough Trade had overextended itself. They'd become a victim of their own success to an extent. And it was more like the... I guess there was just uh, demarcate your business demarcation within Rough Trade because they probably should have had it three separate companies instead of all under the one company. Yes. That was the difficulty they had, I think. But um, but you know the, the uh, I, I think the we did start making money when we started releasing CDs. That's true because when we started off, it was all seven inch singles and twelve inch singles, and then once we started releasing an album on CD, which is became you know the popular format but it also coincided with you know it generated more income for the label so instead of having to be really careful about the amount of records you released you could release more records and and uh, you know and it, and it started doing really well yes so did you did you have a particular group or um, a group of artists that you you definitely wanted as your you know the basis of the label and then you started to grow it whoever sort of came into your sort of general orbit yeah yeah i mean there was there was a band called the leopards who were um you know members of you know they were from that postcard scene again it was like uh a guy that had been in the Jazzeteers and Bourgeois Bourgeois and another guy that had been in Aztec Camera. And and they were also in Paul Quinn and the Independent Group. So their first, the Leopards' first gig was supporting the Independent Group. And I really loved what they were doing. So that was probably the onus to actually 
there was a band I thought were great. I really wanted to release them. So that's where it started. And then I, I was in, there was a band called The Secret Goldfish, which was my girlfriend's band at the time. And uh, she had been in the Fizz Bombs. And the drummer in that band was in the Mackenzies, who were another C86 band. So they were great. Um, and I kind of started getting involved with them. So that became obvious that, well, we'll just release, release it on Creeping Bent rather than trying to find another label. And then we did a record with Alan Vega. We did a, a kind of techno remix of um, the suicide tra track, Frankie Teardrop. And uh, the, we had to contact the copyright owner for Red Star Records, who was a guy called Marty Thau, who also, he'd managed the New York Dolls and he'd managed suicide. And these were in the days of getting faxes, you know, sent yeah. through, the, you know. And so fax came through and it was like, Alan, Alan Vega absolutely loves this record. He wants to make a record with you guys. So then Alan made a record with uh, the revolutionary core of Teenage Jesus. And, and that, you know, so, so it just started kind of coming together in, in that way. In quite a random way. It wasn't, wasn't planned. Um, probably the next band after that that made an impact were Adventures in Stereo, which was uh, Jim uh, Beatty from Primal Scream and Spyria X. That was his project. And, and I try to think. We worked with the Nectarine Number no. 9 after that. That was probably the next phase because they had been on postcard. Yes, and this is with the famous Davy Henderson, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, so that's when really, you know, probably the story of Creeping Ben is really tied up with working with Davy because, you know, he's, um, you know, I think he's a total pop genius. So that was, a, and I started ending up playing ultimately in the Nectarine Number no. 9 and managing the Nectarine Number no. 9. So that, that became the focus of the label did pretty much become the Nectarine Number no. 9. At that so point. how did you, how did you sort of cope, you know, sort of, um, sort of, just looking after yourself. I mean, you know, just with so much going on and the speed of everything happening and the kind of excitement, it's often, you know, however much you try to keep calm about it, it's hard to keep your feet on the ground. Well, you know, it's just a sort of frenetic experience. It's the speed of life. You just kind of have to, to ride through it. Um, you know, I, it kept me active, kept my brain active. And uh, uh, no, I, I really... I really enjoyed it. It felt, it felt to me almost like Creeping Bent was a mission statement. You know, I, I felt like that was my, uh, you know, what I've left on this earth is Creeping Bent. You know, whether that means anything to anyone or a tiny amount of people or a lot of people, we've, we've never really reached any um, critical mass acceptance. But we've just kept going and, and uh, and, uh, you know, to me, it was always about what we're trying to do as art, not trying to be a commercial machine. Um, yes. Did you have, have you had sort of kind of waves with it, you know, like going, you know, the up bit, the down bit, the sort of yeah. levelling off? I mean, was there, did the, the Napster years sort of create lots of problems for the label or did you, was that not such a big gig for you? No, I, I think it did have an impact. There were, there were wee waves and along the way that, that created issues. Um, for example, we used to sell a lot of records in Japan and there was a real problem with you know, the Japanese economy. I can't remember when it was. It had a, kind of a bit of a crash in the late 90s, I think it was. And that really impacted our, 
badly on lots of labels because you know it wasn't economical for the, the Japanese distributors to buy in our records. So we kind of lost a lot of um, sales from that particular uh, period. And I think allied with that was probably just the growth in um, file sharing probably had some kind of impact. Yes. Because you work in tiny margins when you're a, I mean, we're a boutique label, we're a small label. So you needed to um, just find, uh, try and find ways to sort of ride through all these difficulties. But we, we never overextended ourselves, you know, financially. So, because it was never like a business, <laughs> it's never a proper <laughs> business, you know. We're just kind of putting records out, makes enough money to, you know, pay me to put out more records. And that was pretty much the way we kind of went along. Yes. Did you ever see a film called 40 something? And it was it was a guy who he was he was starting a record label. And I think he 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 was convinced that Graham Parker was going to be the one. So Graham Parker does appear in the film, but obviously right. you know the record sales don't add up and his wife is a bit uh. disappointed. It's a very funny film. I can't remember the main actor, but he does it's just kind of one of those things when you talk about boutique and these sort of close margins, whether you you know you have those moments where you're thinking, my God, this is really quite tricky at the moment and then you have a good period well it is like that you know and you have periods where you're selling records and you you think you can get yourself lulled into the false sense of uh well if we've sold you know this amount of records this year next year we'll sell even more and as you know it doesn't work like that you know no Uh, no and did you ever and did you ever sort of did you sort of you know it's sort of hanging, not hanging out, but, you know, meeting other people from labels and sort of having those conversations that you can relate to each other's stories. I just wondered what what it was like when you were bumping into Alan McGee, let's face it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I did have a few meetings with Alan McGee and he was, he was really helpful, actually. He was really um, uh, positive and gave me a lot of good advice. Same with Jeff Travis. And, um, and what we ended up doing particularly with the Nectary number nine, it became obvious that um, it would have been a, it would financially have been difficult for us to to put the band into the studio to make a record. So we took the decision that um, Creeping Bent would effectively manage the Nectary number nine and we would license the recordings to a bigger label. So we did a deal with beggars, for the last two Nectar number nine albums. And that worked well with we a really great relationship with Beggars. We also did some uh, some reissues of our Fire Engines tracks. Uh, so we did an album with Domino. So we start, you know, Creeping Bent started developing relationships, I guess, with you know, some of the bigger independent labels. Yes. With for certain on a project by project basis. So that was that was a good way to to negotiate that difficult time and that and it was actually really enjoyable because when you're speaking when you're dealing with uh, you know the people at these labels they're 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 good people you know it was really uh, I never had any issues at all dealing with them they were they were really good fantastic so does that mean um for yourself you know playing music was that just another kind of you were just able to keep that as a sort of a side hustle going throughout your sort of managerial career yeah because I mean I kind of was playing with the Nectarine number nine by that point and uh, had a few other I was still 
making records occasionally with the secret goldfish. Uh, I was still doing session work. I was playing on quite a lot of albums for Future Pilot, aka who were signed to Stephen Pastel's label uh, Geographic, yes. which was also signed to uh, to Domino Records. And I was, um, yeah, so that all kind of worked well and um, uh, was really positive. Brilliant. So look, later on this year, 2022, mm -hmm. um, you've got a book coming out. Yes. So when did you start sort of thinking, was this a lockdown project? A, it was probably before that. There was a film called The uh, Big Gold Dream, yes. which chronicled, uh, chronicled Fast Product and Postcard. It was directed by a guy called Grant McPhee. Uh, so, so it was a great film. It won lots of uh, plaudits. Uh, it toured all the international film festivals, shown in the BBC. And uh, Grant had interviewed me for the film, and that was when I first met him. And we, at the actual, the film was launched at the Edinburgh Festival. So I was on a panel with, uh, you know, people like Vic Goddard and Malcolm Ross. And we, we formed a band to play afterwards, which was Vic and Mal, guys from the Fire Engines and Joseph K, basically, and me and Vic Goddard was the singer. So I kind of built up a good relationship with Grant through, through that. And uh, I just thought it'd be really cool to have a, almost like an oral history yes. of that whole period. Because Grant already had done lots and lots of interviews and obviously more interview content that you, than he could have used in the film. So come up with the idea of, uh, I would put together a sort of, uh, I guess, an oral history, a narrative of, of how that came together. And um, you know, to my mind, it was almost like, I, I really love, there's a great book called uh, From the, the Velvets to the Voidoids um, that chronicles New York or American music, I suppose. Um, and... Yeah, the, that was a definite influence on uh, the book that's coming out, which, which is called Hungry Beat. Yes, um, how many people? And how many song? Yeah, again. <laughs> and how many um, people have been? Did you manage to interview for the book? Oh, there's a lot. I mean, I don't know. There's 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 a lot of new interviews, and there's all the previous interviews that that uh, Grant and his team had done for the film. So. Yeah, it's a considerable amount of people. Fantastic. And has that sort of gone to the printer, so to speak? So it's definitely going to be ready for Christmas. It will be released on uh, September the 15th, actually. So there's a date. And the book, there's an initial edition of the book. The book's published by White Rabbit. Oh, yes. Great, great, you know, they've got lots of great books uh, that they've been publishing in the last couple of years. And... Uh, it's so it's available at the moment. There's a pre-order from a lot of record stores like, you know, Rough Trade, uh, Piccadilly, and Glasgow. I think it's Monorail, and the first thousand copies of the book has a free seven-inch single with uh, Joseph K's first postcard single, Radio Drill Time, on one side, and the other side is uh, the first Fire Engine single on Codex Communications, a song called Everything's Roses. So, yeah, and they, they're selling out. That's the thing that, that I find uh, really thrilling about the book is there's a big demand for it. So uh, if anyone is interested in the book, you should try and track, track it down in a pre-order as soon as you can because they will go. 
uh, and uh, and then I think in I think once those vers a deluxe versions of the book with the free single are sold, I think in September it will be just you know the hardback version of it without. Yes. God, there's so so much to look forward to. And do you um and with the with the label is that still, you know, chugging along? It's still chugging along, but we do very very um release fairly infrequently. Uh, last year I released at an Alan Vega and Revolutionary Core of Teenage Jesus of reissue a vinyl reissue. It's never been released in vinyl before. It's a great album uh, called Righteous Light. And we have, I've got my own project, which is called Port Sulphur. Uh, we did an album a couple of years ago, and that was a very collaborative album. It had Davy Henderson, Vic Goddard, you know, uh, Gareth Sager, people like that appearing on the album. But the, so the new album's coming out later this year, and that's in a total inversion of that collaborative album, because there's no collaborations on it at all. It's an instrumental album quite uh, influenced, this goes by you know, German experimental music, so it's totally different from the first one. So we've got a Port Sulphur <laughs> album coming out, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And there's a new Gareth Sager album that we're going to do as well. We've released Gareth's last three solo albums over the last 15 odd years. The new album is brilliant. Got a lot of Davy Henderson on that as well. I'm releasing an album by uh, a singer called Monica Queen, which is you know, there's it's called Stop That Girl because there's a cover version of Stop That Girl on it. It's a lot of covers on it. So, yeah, we're, we're still putting stuff out. It's Kingfisher's album next year. There'll be an Article 58 album. Uh, so it's kind of like Creeping Bent now, I suppose, is a mix of putting out new records, but also reissuing older records, I guess. Yes, my God, you do. Yeah, it does sound like you've sort of got quite a nice, like, balance going on there with... Um... Nothing that's kind of just being done just for the sake of it. Yeah, no, I mean, there's it's it's all uh, you know. There's there's this kind of longer term plan. You but you have to sort of plan about two years ahead to get everything done because there's you know um you know like I say we're not a commercial enterprise. We're not a we're not a rock and roll machine. It it takes a while for us to do anything. But there's a lot that we want to try and do because it's uh you know what else are you going to do. Yes, absolutely. And what do you think you'll do with the the kind of label one day? You do will you sort of, I don't know, pass it on or you know, um, I don't know, sell it to Cherry Red Records? No, I don't think I would sell it. I think I would probably. Um, uh, I don't know. I mean, I I've been doing it now since nineteen ninety four, so it has been a lot longer than I probably anticipated. <laughs> uh, but it kind of feels like it's part of my soul and my DNA. So the idea of stopping it is very tempting at times, but I don't know. It just feels like there's always something great to release, you know. Uh, I mean, I, I play with Davy Henderson and another band called The Sexual Objects, and Davy's been writing new songs for that. So if that comes together, you know, uh, and it felt appropriate to put it out in Creeping Bent, it would be... I'd want the opportunity to do that because it's, uh, you know, it'll be, it'll be really amazing. Yes, absolutely. And if you could have said something to your like 16, 18 year old self starting out, you know, in that interesting world of, of music and, 
labels? I mean, is there anything you would have just kind of whispered in their ear or just kind of had made a little, you know, gave them a note saying, look, just, just remember this little bit of advice. You might ignore it, but it might be worth listening to or reading. No, it's such a strange thing because it was, it was I suppose when you're young, you're working so much on instinct, aren't you? You're just, and particularly at that point when there, there were no manuals to read, you know, no. uh, in any way, shape or form. So you had to kind of make it up as you went along and make your mistakes and get things right. But it was largely instinct driven. And that's still probably the, um, that's probably still where my compass is wired is moving on instinct. Yes. Well, it's always a good thing. And to be honest, you know, you've got to have a bit of, and especially when you're younger, you've got to have that kind of enthusiasm and a certain amount of naivety, just not to worry too much about stuff, because the minute you, you lose that, you, you, you sort of question too much or you sort of, you can just put, well, basically you just do a sort of um, risk assessment, don't you? Which is just... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, if you're, going, if you're going to do what I do, if you to do a risk assessment of what I've what I've been doing the last uh, number of years, you would never have, you'd never do it. You'd never do it in a million years, you know, if you're taking the, uh, so, so it's, it's all about just, I guess, following, you know, your, um, your, your passion or your, um, your interests. You yes. know, if I was interested in playing golf, join a golf club. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, getting a Harley Davidson. And has it been kind of nice, you know, with, with the single coming back, meeting, did you keep in touch with the other members of the of Article 58? Yeah, I have. Um, the singer lives in Japan. He's an amazing photographer. He does a lot of, um, you know, kind of art, street photography. He's getting a lot of acclaim. Uh, so, you know, keep in touch, but uh, you know, I haven't seen him for quite a few years because he's living over there. Yes. Or you and I, I kind of bump into every now and then, sometimes go for a walk in the country with him. He lives still lives in the area. So it's nice to catch up. And it's, you know, it's, it's exciting for me that these records are coming back out, but it's kind of really exciting for them because it's another world. I've, ke- I've continued doing music. They stopped yes. doing music. So it's kind of like strange for them to suddenly see... Uh, for example, that the Article 58 single was featured in the big Gold Dream film. So it's really cool for them to see, all right, that record we made's in a film. And it's cool for me as well, you know, I think it's great. Yeah, I, I think, you know, like it's been 40 years with, well, probably a bit plus 40 years, some mm-hmm. of these records, and they've just kind of been, you know, archived and put out there and put in nice compilations and released. I think it's just the best thing ever, actually, because... You know, it gives you an opportunity because a lot of those compilations that have been happening as well have been, you know, like put together with flexi discs that people mm. had sort of like, you know, would have never properly had a sort of release on it. And um, and like, you know, there was Optic Nerve, but like I said, there was Cloudbury and, and Fire Station Records from Berlin. And, you know, they've, mm. they've put, they've cobbled together a few singles and a few sessions and they've like, oh, look, we've got a compilation, an album that you never had, you know, and it's like, yeah. I just think that's, Lovely, really. It is, and it's quite magical. And I think there's a real, a real passion and belief in, in what these labels are doing. And it's and a and people people respond to it. in their they're exciting records, you know. Uh, you know, good art will always be good art. Yes, and I always think, and you must know this. It's just great to think that you know, if if there was a thousand, they would go around the whole world, won't they? There will be somebody in every part of the world playing one of that, you know, playing one of your records. Which is a nice thought. Well, I remember the the first time I met um, Andrew Weatherall, 
I was with a friend who knew him and he introduced me to him in London. And very quickly it became apparent that Andrew Weatherall had the Article 58 single. So, you know, straight away you're like, that's, in my mind, that's crazy, you know, but he was <laughs> part of that record. So, you know, it's, that's lovely, you know. Yes. Well, I've, I've been enjoying playing it. I think it sounds great. So, um, yes, all the best. All the best. Well, look, thank you ever so much for your time. This has been amazing. If you want, I can always um, send you the, the, the link to the, this feature and you can always yeah, put it on your great. website. But, um, yeah, yes, people love it. People love it. But look, thank you again for your time and, and all the best for all those projects. I'll be, um, okay. I'll be looking at Creeping Bend even more. Anyway, look, thanks a lot. Okay, thanks very much then. Take care. See you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you. And that's how you have a big goodbye. I keep those in because it makes me smile. It's just for my own amusement, really. But anyway, look, a massive thank you to Douglas McIntyre to talk about his life in music, Creeping Bent Records, and also the most important thing, the most important, well, there's lots of important things, but the single from the band Article 58 Event to Come is now available from all good record shops online and probably elsewhere. Optic Nerve Records, do check them out, all the way from Preston, releasing quality singles from here, there and everywhere. Mostly the 80s and obscure bands, but they have got a fantastic roster at the moment. And I'm sure there's more to come. Anyway, look, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. Keep it positive and groovy, please. Don't just hassle me about life. Um, and also, all these interviews, fascinating, have been archived on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. They're free. Just listen to them if you want. Um, it's a free, well, it could be free, can it? Free country, free world, who knows. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe.